So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guess lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation. So there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's guest, I get to geek out with and giggle with at least once a week in our faculty meetings because today's guest I am honored to share is a colleague of mine at Francis Marion University, and it's none other than the lovely Rebecca Wada, MS, CCC, SLP, who is also an ABD, which she shared means basically a PhD, but she gives her defense shortly. And I'm not going to lie, it's a fancy term I hadn't heard about, but it means all but 
defended. And she educated me about that. And that's, that's what I love about her. Y'all, Rebecca has made it her mission for education. And as our sweet friend Leslie would say, specifically building a bridge. That's her goal. And it's all about implementation science. Okay, so I heard the thought that most of you had because it was the same thought that I had too. What is implementation science? Ha, honestly, our amazing chair said it for like at least the first 20 times and uh, I had no idea what she was talking about. So I just kind of nodded in agreement and just rolled with it. Um, and then I built up the courage to ask Rebecca what it was. And y'all, this woman spent her PhD researching how to effectively take research from like the academia world and put it into clinical practice, how to build a bridge between the two to positively impact our Monday through Friday. So basically, Rebecca is the embodiment of the holy grail of speech therapy. And y'all, she is here to teach us about it and how to do the thing. And did I mention that I get to work with her? Because I, I could pinch myself. How freaking cool is it that my little university has a specialist that her mission is to take the academia and bridge it into our little clinic to make it all functional. Now that's like a nerdy girl SLP dream like come true and it makes my soul leap with joy. So Rebecca, thank you for coming on. How in the blue blazes did you land in Florence, South Carolina, woman? <laughs> it's a long story. It's a long story. And I get that question because I went to school in Utah. And so then usually the question has been, what made a girl from California go to Utah? Yeah, but... that's that. I got to say, you from California to Utah to Florence. Normally it's in the opposite direction. So... It's true. It's true. But I love the, I love the small town feel. I love the sense of community. Uh, but you, you, you get better in small areas and I love it. I, we do have an amazing tea room. Okay, y'all, if you ever want to go to um, Florence, South Carolina, please try the artichoke grilled cheese sandwich with a side of tomato from the Top Hat Tea Room. You'll thank me. It's amazing. Okay, so aside from our little promo for the best food in all of Florence. Okay, so, so I I assume, and I'm probably, this is me, I feel like I'm at least 10 years older than you, and you come in with all of this knowledge, and it's amazing. So how did you how did you pick this for a PhD research program? And you already have your MS, so that means or your C, so then you practiced as well. So how did all of this happen? Take me from the beginning. So um, I think across my whole educational career, I've just had opportunities fall into my lap, and I just ran with it. Um, when I was in high school, I did what all high schoolers did, which was, what am I going to do with my life? And I loved kids, um, but I knew I, I did not have it have what it took to be a teacher. So I was looking up careers that would let me work with kids, but not be a teacher. And I learned about speech language pathologist. And then we had a neighbor, like literally probably less than a week after I le first learned about speech language pathology, I had a neighbor move in who was a speech language pathologist. And uh said, hey, come, come shadow, come, come see what I do at my school. And so I did, and I loved it. 
And I decided that's what I was going to do. So I, I finished up my associate's degree, which I took continuing ed classes, not continuing it. I took classes during high school. Um, so I, by the time I graduated high school, I basically had my associates done. So I kind of skipped two years in the process. Like I said, I had opportunities fall into my lap. <laughs> I, I went the associates route, but I feel like our high school variations were slightly different because I cut a lot of my sophomore year of high school. So there's a reason I went for the associates and then the rest, but continue. Yes. yes. Uh, um, so, so I went, I did, I did my bachelor's degree in communicative sciences um, and loved it. And then Where did you go to school? I went to Utah State. I went to Utah State University for that. So I transferred um, to Utah State University, finished my last two years, got my bachelor's degree. Um, and during my senior year at Utah State, I had the opportunity to have a, a Arctic client in the clinic, which is a program they did for maybe six or eight of the top seniors that they brought them into the clinic to have them experience it. So I did that and I realized I loved the clinic there. I got to meet the clinical supervisors and I loved it. So then I stayed for my master's degree. And then while I was doing my master's degree, I did my thesis with Dr. Sandy Gillum and realized I loved research from that clinic, from that thesis experience. And so then um, they said, you should stay, do a doctorate with us. <laughs> um, but at that time I was like, I'm burnt out on school. So give me Give me a year, year and a half. Get, let me get my C's, recover from master's program, um, and then I'll come back. And that's what I did. So I went and I worked in the Salt Lake area as, surprisingly, with adults. I worked with what? rehabs. Yeah, so I loved the kids, but then I, again, I fell into my lap. I did an externship at a adult rehab facility. And one of their SLPs was taking a sabbatical for the next year, and they said, hey, Will you work for us after you're done with school? And I said, yes. Um, so it, it just, it, it worked out. And so I worked with adults and I loved it so much. I, I have a special place in my heart for the adult world. Um, and so I did that and then I got my C's and then I went back to my doctorate degree. So okay, so then I, you did your doctorate in four years there? Is that how long? I don't really know how long. It's usually is. four years, but because of COVID, <laughs> I'm taking um, an extra an extra two semesters. So it'll be five years for me, um, but four is their hope. <laughs> and it, I was on track and then I had to re redo some things because <laughs> of COVID. So um, I was supposed to have had my book published, but I mean, uh, COVID so like... <laughs> Fun fact, mom can't do therapy, set up a clinic and homeschool. And oh, by the way, the kindergartner brought home COVID and infected us all. <laughs> so like, you know, it's fine. We, we just have edits and I'll, my life will be fine. But you know, we're cool. We'll keep trucking. Exactly. We'll yeah. keep going. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. Uh -huh. So mm -hmm. it's it's been a process, but I think I I had a lot of opportunities that kind of just appeared and really helped me in my career and realized this is what I like doing. And I just kind of, at every step I said, yes. And it, it kind of led me to where I am. So I've had some great experiences that have helped really shape who I am as a clinician and as a researcher. That's amazing. But I love that. I love that you got the opportunity to see both peds and adults. Yes. Because that's, that gives you a well-rounded um, 
perspective. It does. And so I have been a lifelong clinician. This is, I am, I am in the trenches. That's, and one of my um, biggest frustrations, and this is just me being very open, right? Yeah. One of my biggest pr- frustrations for the world of pediatric feeding disorders is that, well, in general, the world of early intervention is largely misunderstood within our professional scope of practice as you bring in a bag of toys and play with the mm-hmm. tiny human. And like, that's not what we do. <laughs> so like, let's be perfectly clear about that. But also we don't have a lot of functional um, research for pediatric feeding disorders, or at least we didn't until the last five years, because it was in the wide, big branch of dysphagia, the world kind of always just kind of got stuck to the side. And so now we're seeing that shift, but there is, um, there's also this friction that, I mean, I think friction is the right word, correct me here if I'm wrong, between the world of academia and clinic, that like clinicians think academia don't know how to do the therapy because they're not in the clinic. And academia, the perception by the clinicians is, is that the clinicians are doing it wrong because they know and have the research. But we are all the same profession. And so we have to build the bridge between the two. Like I don't have the luxury of doing research. One day I want to, but I don't want to do the calculator. And so, you know, have the engineer husband for that part. But we, I need the knowledge that academia is bringing, but I need it in, for lack of a better phrase, a digestible format to treat my patients to the best of what evidence is telling me. Yes. Yes. And yes. that's what you do. That's that is, literally your job. That's implementation <laughs> science. And I love telling people that. <laughs> they, they say, I have this need and I can tell them there's a thing that fills your need. <laughs> that is so cool. Wait, is your husband an engineer? Because I have a theory that most of us end up marrying like that brain. So my husband is not an engineer, but I will have you know that um, on my dad's side, he has six siblings and I believe four of them either are an engineer or married an engineer. And then on my mom's side, um, my uncle's an engineer. And he also married into a family where everyone is either an engineer or married into an engineer. So <laughs> I come from a long line of engineers. <laughs> okay, so you got the science side of it. Oh my gosh, this is awesome. Okay, all right. So then tell me, tell us all, what is implementation science? Because I feel like truthfully, <laughs> It and you are the holy grail. So lay it out there, lady. <laughs> so the so the easiest way to describe it and kind of what you said earlier is implementation science is our bridge between research and practice. And so if we think about the research to practice gap, implementation science is how we cross that. In a more scientific way, it's an actual scientific study. Um, it's its own study of how we can promote research findings being used um, and turn what we know to be evidence-based practices into routine practice. But it's the scientific study of how to do that. So it looks at what are the barriers to implementation? What are the different stages that someone goes through of the process? 
um, and what do they need at each stage? And how do we how do we best provide someone with research so that they can use it? So you're saying that me charging in saying, hey, I have this great idea. We're going to put evidence-based quotes into every single lesson plan, soap note, eval, plan of care, and discharge summary, because that's what we should already be doing. Just charging in full steam ahead may not have been the best way to implement that. It, it depends. It depends, right? So you have, you have when we think about um, implementation and we think about that, there's different components to it. So I'm sure everyone is familiar with our evidence-based practice triangle that has your um, knowledge as a clinician, it has the evidence and it has the person, right? That, that triangle. Implementation science is the same way. Um, it's not really a triangle. Some people interpret as like a hexagon or a heptagon, but we have different components. And the method that you use will vary depending on what you're trying to implement, who you're doing it with, um, the environment that you're in, and a whole lot of other different factors. And what works for one place may not work for another. And so because we have you, who is this incredible person that people want to work with, you can charge you and say we're doing this and get people on board, um, but that may not work for me. <laughs> and so implementation helps you weigh all of those different factors to decide what is the best plan of attack. And um, the best thing about implementation science and also the most frustrating things is if we think of it as a four phase process, so there's four stages to go from, I'm just learning about something to I'm using it every day. If we think about it being four, broken up into four stages, it's not until we get to stage three that we're actually starting to use the thing. Half of our time is going to be spent on planning and figuring out barriers and things. Um, so it's stakeholder buy-in. Yes, that is a huge part. That is a huge part of implementation science. How do you get it? Um, if you don't have it, how do you how do you get someone to do something that they may not want to do? And that is a part of implementation science. All right. So this is theory. Let me give let me give the translation. Okay. Okay. So um, folks, I don't know if you know that we're supposed to be doing this or not but we are supposed to be embedding within our evaluations and our plan of cares at minimum, and theoretically also even within our daily notes, our quotes for evidence to justify our services rendered, okay? So this is Medicaid, Medicare, that, um, and, and private insurances, some private insurances also require, but definitely the Medicaid and Medicares. So how this looks in my private practice, um, I would, um, I have specific quotes that I would use, um, patient at risk, um, patient presents with um, moderate to severe or pharyngeal dysphagia as indicated by intermittent follow-up study, patient warrants skilled clinical services one time a week for 60 minutes with emphasis on parent coaching and education. This is a quote that I've been using for years. It's the only reason I can like rattle it off. It's directly from ASHA, okay? So I have quotes to justify my services for um, a pediatric feeding disorder and oropharyngeal esophageal dysphagia uh, for my use and why I need to embed AAC as a functional strategy. And then here's the next piece. It's good to justify it within our our evals, but then you have to be able to go in. And this is the piece that I've only really teased out in the last seven months of my life. 
to go in and justify the specific approach. Dun, dun, dun. So it's not enough just to say that services are warranted and need to be rendered, but why you're doing the approach that you're doing. And can you, as a clinician, identify the approach that you're using? And that's hard. Yes. Because a lot of us are so far removed from grad school experiences that we don't remember the specific therapeutic approach like recasting or parallel talk or extension. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So that's, so that's what I did at our clinic. And I'm sure the students hate me, but like I made all of them write all of their quotes in because they need to know the why and the science behind. And Dr. Watt is making it a lot scary aside from Michelle saying we're doing this. <laughs> so yay. Yes, because uh, it's it's something that's important to do. And if we've learned anything from implementation science is that just telling someone you should be doing this is not enough and will lead to no change at all. Uh, if we take this passive approach, that is just, let me get the information out there and hope that something sticks and they start using it, nothing will change. And so we need to, in a way, kind of nudge that change along by being a lot more active and so have starting at the students is great and having them do it every single time is great to build that habit because we need we need that active that active push. Yes, that's how we end up in a world full of pediatric feeding disorders where everybody's like, hey, chew on a piece of plastic and magically that will carry over to actually chewing on food without overt signs, symptoms of aspiration. Yes. But, you know, chewy tube conversations are a topic for a different episode. <laughs> Also, there's no chewy tubes in our clinic. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, all right. All right, so how, okay, so you came and, um, okay, I'm going to let the cats out of the bag. Rebecca is so amazing that she's actually putting together like a big um, webinar for us next month, February. Is it February or March that it's coming out? I think we just finalized the date and I want to say it is March 7th-ish. <gasps> That's almost my birthday. That's like a great, that's a nerdy girl birthday present. Huzzah. Okay. Yes. Okay. So she's going to actually have a webinar complete with like all of her amazing graphics. And I've seen these graphics because she's been um, gracious enough to put it together to educate, um, as my mama would say, educate myself and the clinical educators that I work with. And uh, it's, that's why when you said a heptagon, I was like, I know what a hexagon is, but I don't know what a shape a heptagon is. I'm sure my eight-year-old could tell me, but like, yes. So, but we need, we need the visual imagery to understand some of those pieces. But yes. you, you also hit the point on establishing the buy-in or implementing will fail. So can you talk to us about, like, I go engineer terms, input, output, and then assessment, but there's other terms for this. Yes, so buy-in um, is is what we would refer to it as in implementation science. Um, and if we think if we think back to the very initial part of who is going to use something new, and what the very beginning part of implementation science, they looked at what are the different characteristics of a person that would make them more or less likely to use something new. No matter what that new thing is, 
we can kind of characterize people into four and five different categories of that those people that will immediately be totally fine using something new and embrace it. Going all the way down to someone that will never use something new, no matter how much you force them to. Um, and if we think about people being within those four or five different categories, that means that when we want someone to start doing something new, let's say you as Michelle Dawson want your uh, students to use this thing, all of your students are gonna fall somewhere on that continuum with some being, yes, I'm going to do this. Doesn't matter <laughs> who told me, I will do something new. All the way to, I will never do something new. I'm not comfortable with that. And if we understand that, then the next step is how do we get the people that are less likely to use it naturally? How do we get them to use something new? And that's a buy-in. And we can build buy-in in different ways. There's a, there's a whole lot. There's a whole lot there to buy in. But the main thing being, um, they need to have the appropriate support. They need to have the appropriate knowledge. Um, and they need to have some sort of relationships with someone who is doing the same thing that makes them want to do it too. We call them champions. And it's so not the, like peer pressure, but in a positive way. In a positive way. So it's them <laughs> saying, you know, this person that I trust and look up to is doing it and they're seeing positive things. So I'm more likely to do it too. Um, and so we can use these ideas of how to get someone to do something with buy-in to improve our implementation of something. But we have to think about it ahead of time. If because we're going to get better success if we try and build the buy-in first than if we start doing something and have to buy the buy-in afterwards. So it goes back to that planning stage and deciding what to do and how to do it in the appropriate order. But the, but the thing I love about implementation science is it is a process and um, it is a cycle where you try something new, you evaluate if it works, and then you make a change. And then you go through that cycle again and again. So even if you do something and you decide, you know, that wasn't the best way to do that, you have another chance because we're going to go through the cycle again. And we're going to constantly learn and grow and improve as we go. But that's what we do. That's what we do in therapy. Yes. Like I'll go, like I go into, I'm, I have one kid that is stumping me and I am failing. And okay, I'm not failing. I am not not failing though. <laughs> okay, and it's it. There's a there's a lot to be had for this child. They have a different cultural background. Um, they don't speak English. Um, their culture says that the reason the child has ASD is all the mother's fault. Um, mothers exhibiting extreme signs and symptoms of postpartum depression that has carried over into depression. And um, a child has echolalia, which this is interesting. I am old enough to say that I was taught that echolalia was non-functional speech, right? Mm -hmm. And now we're learning that echolalia is functional, but you have to like I'm going to butcher the analogy here, but like you have to like train and like teach how to segue it. Does that, am I explaining that well? Yeah, I think right? so. Like, yeah. So like I had one little kid that did countdowns of top 10 animal planets. This is how old I am. And so when he was stressed, 
he would do top 10 animal planets most deadly, right? Mm-hmm. And we learned that that scripting, that echolalia was his stress. So we gave different scripts that were more functional and mm-hmm. segued it. Well, this child is scripting, but not in English. And I don't understand the language, nor do we have an interpreter. And because the child is three, there's no interpreter available. And so we have all of these variables and the family had their well poisoned against um, AAC by other clinicians um, who told them that the child would just um, stim on anything. And so they don't even want me to bring anything into the home. Mm-hmm. And so every single week, I feel like I'm reassessing how can we make recasting and parallel talk more functional when I have all of these other variables at play? Yes. And, and it's hard because I know where I want to get the kid, but I don't know how I don't, I can't see what I'm missing. Yeah. 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 And that's, um, implementation science it uses a lot of the same techniques that I think a lot of SLPs will have been taught to do, but it gives a name to it um, and it gives steps to it. So we can, when you are facing situations like that, and I can even, I can, I can send you something that may or may not help, but it helps provide a framework that you can put all of these ideas into and all these thoughts that you have into an order of some kind. To help you then decide, okay, maybe if I if I stick something into a framework so I can kind of see the outline of it and all the different components, um, maybe I'll see something where I can go next. Or maybe we might have something in implantation that might help in improve one area, may improve what the family are thinking, or it might improve some other area that um, couldn't help your outcome. But it, it gives a nice support, but it's also nice because it's your justification. And it's giving you your justification for why you're doing what you're doing. So then you, it makes it easier to explain um, why I'm doing this. Do you have a document that you could we could embed in like the show notes that you could share with Yumi for this? Yeah. So um, the the thing I like to do as far as what what I like to show for planning, um, and it's going back to your hexagon. <laughs> There's two different versions. There's a hexagon and a heptagon. I like the hexagon one, but there is one that you want to go even more detail. But it breaks down all of our different components that we have to consider. The institution or the place that you're at, the family and their values and all these different categories. And I like it because it breaks it down into different questions that you as a clinician can complete on your own. Or you can complete with a family if you think that's something that would help them. And then you you say, okay, here's one approach I could take. Here's another approach I can take. And let's see, do they address all of these issues? And which one addresses that issue? And then we can decide, okay, based on all of these different issues we have, we can see which treatment might fit best. Because that's what we're doing with implementation science and our planning is we're deciding what is going to fit best. What is going to best fit this single situation? And so we can look at this scale, it's called the hexagon scale, and decide what is the best one to fit right now. And it breaks it down in a way that might make it a little easier for someone to consider what are all the different things I need to think about by giving simple questions to answer yes and no to, 
and you get a number that says the fit is a five for this component, which is really good. Or the fit is a one for this component. That's terrible. I should, <laughs> if this is something that's really important, <laughs> I should not use this because it's not going to work. That's literally what I feel like I am right now. I feel like I'm a fit of one. And yeah. I'm like, is this my seed? Like, and like, I've told the students, so I'm like, sometimes you're the seed planner and you're not the gardener. Yes. And like one of the students was like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, that's my old mountain way of saying for some kids, you're there long enough to plant seed. Uh, this is what we need to do. Yes. And, and my And my statement has been, this child needs specialized education. This child needs to attend an early childhood special education program. And forcing the child to sit in a, in a structured environment and have and be read to all day long is not a good environment for typical language acquisition, even for a child with ASD. And I am going to eventually have to say, I have done all that I can. If you want to continue with this therapeutic approach, you're going to need to go here unless I can reassess and try to be a fit of five or find the fit of five or educate to the fit of five. Yeah. Because right now the fit of one is not happening. Yeah. But yeah. Um, but it's a process, especially when you think about how each person naturally has a openness to new things. And it means that for some family, if that family naturally isn't very open to trying new things, it's going to take time and work to get them to be open to trying something new. And that has nothing on the clinician, but it's about the family. And so if I know it's going to take a while to get the family on board, then I have to decide, what do I do in the meanwhile? And so I can choose what is the best approach while I continue to work on that. Because if I force if I force them to try something new and they're not ready, no matter how great that intervention is, it most likely won't work because we need to have everybody involved. Um, and Your stakeholder buy-in. Yes. 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 And so um, implementation science has a lot of ways to try and help build stakeholder buy-in, whether that is um, building it with the family and working with that relationship. Um, Connecting them to someone that they trust, if we think of that champion, someone that they look up to and trust, and that you can get them involved and on board of trying something new, then maybe the family would be more willing to try something new. There's a whole lot of components involved. But implementation science kind of helps break it down into a little more bite-sized, manageable ways to try new things. <sighs> you just took a lot of anxiety off of my plate. Thank you. That's good. That's good. Yes. No, but like really truthfully and in, in the trenches, you feel like, what am I doing wrong that I can't get this family to get on board with what I'm yeah. trying to explain. Right. Yes. But the explanation of the different personality types to those that will always try to those that will never try. It, it, it may not be the clinician because there's some things that are in the family's control and you can do your best and that's, that's what you can do. And it may not have the result that you want. Um, but that's not to say that you didn't try your best. And implementation science kind of is that way to make sure that you are trying your best and using what you know to best help. Um, but like, like you said, sometimes you're just going to be the person that plants the seeds and that family needs more time for that seed to grow. But then later, once they're a little more open and they realize, okay, I'm ready now. 
that's the time to, to strike again. Yes. And that's the hard thing about implantation science, because the thing about implantation science is all implantation, all implantation scientists know it's a process. We're looking at years here to, to get something from, I'm just looking at, to trying something new, to I'm using that new thing every day. That's like a two to four year process. And that as a clinician is hard, right? Cause you're like, I don't have four years to improve my therapy, but- I um, have one semester, I want it all done. Yes, now. yes. And that is the hardest part about implementation science is if something doesn't work the first time, we don't abandon it. Because there's many, many good things that would work, but we abandon it too soon. And we give up on it too soon. But if we go through the process and we make small incremental changes and we try small things that might improve, you may get your results. And it just often isn't as fast as we want it to be because we want to make those changes right away. And that's the hardest part about implementation science is trusting the process and giving it the extra time that it needs. And that is, it's so hard. It's so hard. It, it is, especially when you want to see results. Yes. All right. I love ASHA SIGs. Um, ASHA SIG 13, the special interest group um, for dysphagia. That's my thing, right? Yeah. And I'm always a huge proponent of people reading that because I feel like they especially in the last couple of years, have done such a good job at purposefully selecting Pete's dysphagia journal articles that are bridge builders, mm. right? It's um, like, it's great to know the IDSI framework, but how to teach the IDSI framework in somebody's house mm -hmm. when you're doing home-based services or... I'm just pulling that as an example. Like they have supports for that, right? Yeah. Say I read an article on a Friday night. How do I take, how, walk me through the process. How do I take that journal article and then try to, where do I start with whatever new topic I've learned on Monday morning? Yeah. So the first thing I would do is making sure that you know that article is good. Um, it got peer-reviewed, which is a good first step, but you also have to make sure that their methods were sound, they described it in enough detail, um, and it's something that hopefully is replicable. What we're looking for, for some a good approach that someone, a clinician can use, is that you can look at what they said they did, and then you can do that. You want those details saying, I could do that again. So that's going to be the first thing is deciding, is the evidence good? And that's right. That's the first thing most people do when looking at evidence. They decide, is this good? And then when we think about implementation, if you decide the evidence is good, I'm then going to look at its fit. And that, that fit is going to be the fit to the situation I need it for, the fit to the family or the client, um, and the fit to me. Is this something I can do? And the fit to my environment. Is this something I'm able to implement in the environment I'm going to be in? And so you're going to have to evaluate lots of things. And you look at things like um, how much time does it take? Because if a lot of researchers, we do things very time intensive because we have that ability to. And if you don't have the ability to follow their time schedule, then you know, okay, that may change the outcome that I see. Or look at things like cost or how much knowledge you need to have. 
Um, what does the family need to do? Does there need to be coaching or training? Do I need extra resources that I'm going to ask, have to ask my supervisor for? Or is there extra training that I'm going to have to get? So you're going to look at the fit. If we know the evidence is good, then we're going to see, okay, the best, the best approach in the world could be the best, but if it does not fit my situation, it will not work. So the SLP's job is then to make sure, will this fit? And if it does, and it looks like it's something that's worthwhile, um, then we'll actually try it. And we'll say, okay, I'm going to try doing this. Um, and then you use it following the methods that was described in the intervention or in that article. Um, because that's going to give us best case scenario. Research, research especially is best case scenario. If we do everything right in a nice sterile clinic room, we can see these improvements. But as we all know, actual clinical therapy is messy and isn't as nice as it is in research. So we're going to do our best, our best effort to our best effort to follow what they did and do it for however amount of time that they did before they saw results and try it out. And then you're going to evaluate, okay, how much progress did I make? Did I make any progress? And is there something I need to adjust? And then you go through that cycle again. You make little changes, you try it for a while, you reevaluate. But the best thing you can do is before you even start using that intervention is you really, really make sure that it is going to fit what you need. And decide if there are any barriers that you're going to have, any problems that you could come into. Preemptively figure that out and come up with a plan of how you might address the problems that could come up there's always problems that can come up. But if we take the time on the front end to really evaluate, is this program going to be effective based on my client, based on my knowledge, based on my resources, based on the environment? If you take that time and you figure out the barriers, you decide that it fits, it's going to make the actual using it, the implementing part, easier. But then you have to keep going. Once you implement, keep going. Don't, don't just throw it away after a little bit and you don't think you're seeing progress. Um, maybe you're just not seeing progress in the way that you're examining progress. Or maybe it's very small progress. There's a whole lot of things involved. Right, because we, we often use very set ways to examine our progress. But those aren't always the best way to look at the progress that we're making. And so if I, if I am deciding, is this program working? One of the questions I'm gonna ask is, is the way that I did my post-test or whatever it is I used to see if it worked, is that the best way to, to see the progress that I want to see? Or is there a different method that might show me progress instead? Okay, I have to ask a question and forgive if this is naive, but implementation science is not unique just to speech pathology. Because no. I kind of feel like you're describing my struggles with an exercise routine. <laughs> implementation science is its own field, um, independent of the specific nature. So it, it kind of originally started really hardcore in the medical field. Um, how do we get someone to take their heart medication every day? Right? Those were the things. Right? But those sort of things, how do we get someone to do something? How do we get someone to make a change? And it, we've had research, um, they've done research in technology, um, in agriculture. There's so many things because implementation science at its core is how do we get someone to do something different? That's its core. How do we get someone to do something different? 
based on that knowledge and our, our knowledge of people and things, we can then come up with specific frameworks for individual fields. And so that's what I'm kind of doing and looking at with the SLP research is taking what we know about implementation broadly. How do we get someone to do something new? Specifically within SLP and that field. Um, but at its core, all of these things we're talking about, all the different stages and someone's willingness to try something new, um, that's not SLP specific. It's much broader, but we can apply that knowledge to the SLP. This is so freaking cool. This is like the sciencey stuff I love. This okay, so I read science books to help me relax when I'm not <laughs> knitting. So like this is just amazing. I snorted. I'm so happy. Oh my god, I'm so freaking nerdy. All right, so I'm thinking. All right, folks, there was this article in Asha Sig years ago where they talked about, and this was the first, oh my God, this was the, one of the first articles that I read that made me realize I had to let go of being a silo SLP, right? Yeah. So what they did was they took, um, I read it on an airplane to go give a lecture and it was so dang good. I pulled the data and redid and added two slides to the lecture because that's how good this, I can't remember the name of the freaking article. I'll, I'll think of it. But okay, so what they did was they took, um, it was out of Ireland, Ireland or England. I don't know, it was across the pond because I, my mom's best friend is from London and I could just hear her saying, it's across the pond, Michelle, <laughs> and like teasing me. But like, anywho, they took two different subject groups of children that had um, uh, varying um, etiologies, but it all drove down to poor low tone, right? Oropharyngeal dysphagia with poor low tone and um, known head trunk control deficits, right? And all these kids were aspirators, right? And, and by different etiologies, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, um, uh, perinatal CVA, IVH, those kind of things, right? And so they took, they did one group for a series of, they did a baseline swallow study and then a series of only speech pathology geared activities, like traditional, what we would think of, of non-speech oral motor exercises, which we should know by now is not effective for PO intake improvement. And um, then did a follow-up modified, okay? Then they took the second group and they did the traditional speech stuff and I use traditional because RAR, um, but they added in OTPT with specific emphasis on head, neck, and core stability, which translates to, y'all, they put the kid on the therapy balls and they bounce them. They bounce them forwards, backwards, sideways, all the different directions. <laughs> and I'm like, and like, I know that's like not the, their terms, but like they gave them those exercises and that input, right? And so they did that for the baseline and then they had that for a series of weeks embedded in all of their therapy. And then they did that pre and post for the swallow studies. And guess what? The babies that were bounced did better on the barium than the babies that were not bounced. Bam, alliteration. Okay, why? Because we can't just practice as silo clinicians we have to improve our core strength 
in order so that the child sits up straight so that they have better head and neck strength. And if you have better core, head, neck, you build your house on stone. If the house is built on a strong foundation, children improve in their swallow. Yes. Right? Yeah. And it was, it was amazing. And so my, for lack of a better phrase, six degrees of change, my implementation science for me personally, my takeaway, and I didn't quantify this the way that you described, I wish I, oh, we're starting an OTPT program in like four years. We have to make this a thing, Rebecca. Yes. Um, but like I took it and ran with personally and my walk with my patients, I need to collaborate interprofessionally with OT and PT. And how do I go about doing that? Do I need to go to their sessions? Do I need to zoom into their sessions? Do I need to FaceTime into their sessions or vice versa so that we can actually reassess the physiologic structures of these kids? And that drastically changed the outcomes of my patients. Mm -hmm. But I wish I had the luxury of quantifying it the way that implementation science says to go about this. This is so cool. It is. It is. It's it's great. And then in the, in the fields of wanting to make sure that you can justify what you're doing, implementation science can kind of be your justification um, when you're deciding, okay, someone goes, well, why did you choose that approach? You can say, well, I did this analysis and I used this tool that helped me look at all these things and this is the one that was best. And it, it, it's giving you that framework to do what you may be already doing as a clinician, but it's putting it kind of into a nice little framework that you can use as a justification and as a way to explain your approach. So when the family goes, well, I heard about this thing. Why didn't we do this? You can say, well, here's why. And we can even do this together. And let's, let's fill it out on, my, on our thing to decide if it's going to work or not and whether it's good. And you can say, oh, the evidence isn't that good for this one. So that's why we just chose the other one instead. Sorry, you just made me think of like, we chose picture exchange communication on all fringe vocabulary with the words all going back in different places. And then you're like, but where's the science to support that? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. But, yeah. but you can use that. It's it's a tool. Information science can be your tool to explain what you're doing. And there's, there's people I talk to about information science and they're like, oh yeah, I kind of do that already. And a lot of the things are things that clinicians are doing already. But implementation science is just giving it, it's giving structure. Yeah. I, okay. So for those of us, like myself included, that have, um, I struggle with structure, right? Like I, I have ADD and ADHD and I ping pong, which you've literally seen me do, I'm sure, by much less at my desk. The standing desk is the greatest invention ever if you two struggle to sit still for long periods of time. But um, structure is difficult because I I don't always like rules. <laughs> so like that for me, <laughs> if somebody's like, but you need to do this, my immediate follow-up question is why? Yes. Which I think makes me a good therapist because if I'm pursuing the why, then you have to give me the evidence behind why I need to do this. So for those of our colleagues that are also, but why, yeah. um, how do, how do they make this, how do they make this not 
overwhelming because I'm thinking like some, the reason I left the private practices that I worked at and started my own private practice was because there was a lot of, there was a specific emphasis on productivity, yes. not quality yes. of therapy rendered. And folks didn't care that a child may have been sick and um, couldn't do a makeup this week because they didn't understand underlying etiologies like congenital heart disease and seizure disorders. And when Monday through Friday, like we are stressed for the most part about meeting productivity, being asked to do one more thing, it feels like it's like the thing that broke the camel back and you're like, screw it, I'm done, I'm out. It can be. And yes, but how, so how do we... How do we do this without hitting that feeling? Yeah. So I think um, the nice thing about implantation science is you can do it on yourself. So so decide, okay, this is the thing I want to implement. So out of all the things we talked about today, I want to start doing this. And that's the thing you're going to implement. And so then you do it and you try to do it. And then after a couple of weeks, you're valid. Okay, did I do it? If I didn't do it, why? And is there something I can change to help me do it? Or if not, okay, maybe that wasn't the best thing to try. Let's try something else instead. So do these little things on yourself and evaluate, is this working? Is this not working? And why or why not? Um, but you take it in those small little chunks and you don't make a widespread change unless we have the support to help us make a huge change. Like don't change all of your paperwork or your whole decision making scheme all at once unless you think you can handle that. But maybe we would just take off a little piece and say for the next couple of weeks or the next two months or three months or semester, I'm going to focus on trying to implement this. And then I'll evaluate and decide whether or not it's working. Did it cause the change I wanted to see? And if not, why? And then continuing that cycle again. So you're making small changes. If we're going back to implementation science, this takes years to make a full change of I first want to try something new to I'm doing it every day. So if you're someone that wants to start using some of these implementation science things, your first step is going to be learning about it and seeing, do I think this is going to fit with what I need? Um, and if it does, how can I use that? But it, it'll be, from what we know about the research, two to four years to going from, I heard about implementation science. I think it's really cool. And I'm going to look more into it. To I'm using implementation science framework and these procedures in my everyday practice. Two to four years. So take it in small chunks. You don't have to change everything all at once. It's making small changes that lead you to your final outcome, just like we do with our, our clients. Right? We don't expect them all at once to be able to start doing something right away. It's a process. And it's the same thing making changes um, as a clinician to kind of how you address things and how you look at something. Okay. So I, I did this one of, one of my mentors, um, told me years ago that, um, she embedded research into all of her documentation mm -hmm. and, um, and, and had her students do it. Yeah. Right. And I was like, wait, what we're supposed to be doing that crap. And it was the, like, feeling that you get like, you know, anxiety yes. when you wake yeah. up and you're like, oh my God, did I insert yes. phobia? Like, you know, 
blow the candle out in the living room or like, Mm -hmm. you know, those kind of three o'clock in the morning worries. But, um, so I honestly took an afternoon when I had, you know, those days when like everybody on your caseload cancels for whatever reason. So (laughs) I did the only logical thing. And instead of writing the week's worth of therapy notes I needed to write, I decided today's going to be the day I'm going to research all the (laughs) But it was the best thing that I did. So I took the afternoon and I researched quotes. It was 2017 because that's when, so three years ago. Mm -hmm. So it was 2017 because that's um, the day that I pulled everything off of Asha. And I put everything, I made one giant template, Mm -hmm. right? And so I have my template and then I just go through and I pull it. And then I started with just dysphagia and then I added an AAC and then I added a little bit of language because I do a little bit of language, right? Like not, um, because language does go hand in hand with like, I want to eat. Mm-hmm. It's great to be able to tell me no. I want something different. I like how I'm signing as if you can see. <laughs> <laughs> Basically all the signs I know correlate to food. <laughs> um, fried shrimp is a really great sign, by the way. Um, okay. So squirrel. Um, but yes, so there's, there's, it was a process. Yes. And so now I'm like, okay, so folks, if you can't, it was, it was, chunks. I did it in chunks, right? So I did that. And then I started adding it into my, my evals. And then I started adding it into my plan of cares. And the beautiful thing was the computer program that I use for documentation. It just like generates over. So I didn't have to do it every freaking time. I could just like, it self-propagated, right? Yes. Which made it so much easier. And then as I've been doing it for a few years, just like you said, I look back and I'm like, oh, oh, I could do this better, right? Because mm-hmm. we're in a perpetual state of reassessment, which is part of the, um, <laughs> I like how I'm like, you know, the circle with the arrow that yes. you drew on your presentation. Yes, exactly. I'm like, I'm like, yes, that's like number three. That's the third circle, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you reassess back. See, I listen to you with my little photographic memory every once in a while. I don't know. I Googled what a heptagon is. It's a seven-sided shape. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> I can never remember which or which. I know. I was like, man, Goose is upstairs. I can't just ask the kid. But um, <laughs> I gave birth to tiny engineers. And I don't know, a little Romeo is the little one. But um, we'll figure that out in a couple of years. But those those changes were easy. So instead of it being like this all, oh my God, I have to do this entire process improvement, this one upcoming week from Monday through Friday, pick one quote, do one thing, and you can do it when you, I mean, heavens to Betsy's, I almost did not say that I almost said something different, but you can do that when you're in line waiting at a coffee shop on your drink, because it really doesn't take that long to actually pull it because the practice portal actually goes through and line items out the hierarchy of research, which makes life so much easier than when I pulled it four years ago, three years ago. (laughs) But it has changed my clinical skills. Yeah. And I'm excited to see what it's going to look like in two or three years, much less 10, but like how different my practice will be. Because yes, one day I want to do research, but like mm, we got a mortgage and like PhD ain't in my immediate future. So 
I need to be the best clinician that I can, but I need to know how to build the bridge to get there. But also clinicians are your own individual researchers. If you think about research, we have an idea, we try it, and then we evaluate if it worked and why not. And every clinician is doing research on their own. And um, you can you follow the same steps that a researcher does. And that's the only difference is one is publishing what's going on and the other isn't. But each clinician is their own researcher where you look to see, do I think this should work? I'm going to try it. And I use the same methods and I, and I try it out and then I see if it worked or not. And that is research. Uh, they're, they're not necessarily two separate things, um, right? It's, the gap is much less smaller than, than it, we think it is. That's beautiful. Oh, you made me feel fancy. <laughs> I'm processing that in my head. Yeah. Oh, I, I will have questions for you later this week, friends. I, I am always, always available to answer questions. Yes. Okay. All right. So, all right. We, I do have to save us a little bit of time for four questions, literally, because we have to switch over to the question portion. But um, is there anything else you want for us to know about implementation science and clinical practice in 0.50 seconds? Um, I think the main thing is to, first off, is just knowing that it's there and that it's an option for you to use, because that is kind of the, the point we're at with implementation science with SLPs, is getting the word out there that this is a thing that you can use to help you. And so if I could have you do one thing is just to start looking into it. Um, there's have been a couple articles published on through ASHA journals and things talking kind of basically what is implementation science. Um, and those are great starting points to kind of get a nice overview of how it might apply specifically to SLPs and give you some good places to then start your search as you learn more and to think about how this can be used in your clinical practice. Yes. Okay. And wait, you said you're having your webinar on what day? I believe it's March, March 7th. Okay. Hang on. I'm going to do the Google. Okay. So, um, uh, Dr. Rebecca Wada, and I did get it right, right? ABD. Yes. All but, it's all but okay. dissertation. Yeah. All but district. I said defended. Okay, close. close. It's close enough. <laughs> Most people we never use a long form. We just always use ABD. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, I I didn't I didn't even know what it meant. I'm like, cool. She's. I wonder what she studied. <laughs> All right. So it's Sunday, March seventh. It'll be on speechtherapypd.com. I am so excited. So come join your um your your fellow sciency um SLP nerds. Huzzah! Thank you so very much. Um, let me switch us over to questions. Can you hold on real quick? Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on 
PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Yeah.